0: Welcome to another episode of I'll Be There For You, a podcast about pop culture and coping. I'm your host slash producer slash snack mom, Lindsay Ennett. Every episode I bring in a funny person, someone I admire, to talk about a piece of pop culture that got them through a difficult time in their lives. Why am I doing this? Why am I subjecting you to another pop culture podcast? I love talking to people about the things they love and about how they care for themselves and their communities when the world is literally out on fire if you love the real housewives but also care about the melting ice cap this podcast is for you my awesome guest today is hope rehack um, rehab with aK as she introduced herself at martyrs. <laughs> Last week, she is a comedian and playwright whose work has been featured in Brightwall Dark Room, on Reductress. She's been, she's received the Copenhagen Wisecrackers Comedy Newcomer of the Year Award. She's a Chicago native and one time she taught a class for
1: credit about Harry Potter. I would. with
0: love to hear more about that to get us started.
1: Sure. Okay, so I went to Oberlin College, which is a ridiculous uh, liberal arts school in Ohio. I'm very grateful to have gone there. But they have a department that's called the Experimental College Department, um, EXCO for short, where students teach other students classes for credit. And I taught one by myself about the television show House MD, because I'm a huge nerd. And it was basically about like Sherlock Holmes adaptations over the last 150 years. And then that led to a friend, a very dear friend, and I collaborated over like creating a sort of fandom syllabus about Harry Potter. And you have to kind of justify it to the school and you kind of have to be like what does this teach that the school doesn't teach um so Harry Potter is on like a lot of college syllabi these days it was about 10 years ago but um in sort of like storytelling and English classes and folklore classes fandom studies now that that's a thing but what we were doing was sort of like yeah we were really embracing the other (laughs) nerds at Oberlin and really made it a class about like the community that sort of rose up around Harry Potter when we were kids
0: It was kind of proto fandom
1: studies. It was. It was. The only thing we had to go on, this was literally, I can tell you, it was 2009 through 11. So um, that we were doing it. And as far as I know, it's still going on at Oberlin because uh, people take over. If if it's a popular class, then, like, you know, someone in the class takes over the following year. And I know it went on for a few years, at least um, with our syllabus for a while. But yeah, the only fandom studies that we found to really shore up what we were doing, again, to like justify to the department, was Henry Jenkins, who's like very famous for talking about Star Trek fandoms. And he I think he teaches it. It's one of the UCs. I think it's Berkeley. So we just raided all of his papers and like brought them to Oberlin. And we're like, see, this is a real thing. And uh, you should give us credit for teaching this real class about fandom.
0: (laughs) What kind of things would you talk about in the in sort of this Harry Potter proto fandom studies course?
1: Oh, my God, it was so fun. So I had studied abroad the year before I taught it. I'd studied abroad in Copenhagen. And I'd taken a class that was called from Homer to Harry Potter and European storytelling. You know, there has to be a colon in every college class. Of course. (laughs) So I used some of that material and that was like very much like locating fandom studies and Harry Potter specifically and like the hero's journey and like Jungian and Joseph Campbell ideas of the monomyth and like how the reason that Harry Potter was such a huge phenomenon was at least in part because it's an old story that like hits a lot of familiar beats that everybody kind of has a reference point for, like every culture sort of does. I mean, it was a worldwide success. Like I have copies of it in a bunch of different languages that I don't speak. Friends for like a friend from India, uh, Brought brought me a Hindi copy. I don't speak Hindi, so you know I just love that it's like kind of ubiquitous. Um, so we studied that. We studied like why it hit certain themes, and then we studied adaptations. Like we studied interviews with the people who made the movies about things that they changed because I don't really like the movies, and I love the books. Uh
0: uh-huh. <laughs> Is that going to be a problem, Lindsay? No, not at all. I would. Love to. I would love for you to unpack that a little bit. Oh, it's so it's so dorky. Okay, okay. Literally, first of all, I, I'm gonna have to stop you right there. <laughs> okay. That this is, you know, we want to celebrate fandom and the things people love. This this is a no disclaimers zone. So do not feel like you have to qualify <laughs> things as dorky or, or. It's
1: not even like you know. I hear you, and I love that you said that, and it's something I work on, and I will try. But th- it's also like. <laughs> I go down like a fandom spiral and I can talk at people for a really long time and like kind of, you know, lose them. And I don't think that's going to happen here, but I think it's more it's not that I'm ashamed. It's that I need you to stop me. (laughs) Okay. <laughs> if I get too obsessive. Okay. Understood. Um, but thank you. I'm very proud of being um, a huge nerd about this. But but yes. So the the movies, um, like really the big thing for me is that Ron is awesome. You know, you and I do comedy. Ron in the books is hilarious. He has sort of JK Rowling's sense of humor and she gives him a lot of witty lines and he's like, a smart, funny person. And I just have to say this because I talk about it all the time. He's a prefect with Hermione in like the sixth or seventh book. Like he's a to- at the top of their class. So everyone can go home about like Ron being stupid. And in the movies, they – I don't blame Rupert Grint or anything, but I do think Steve Cloves who – or Clovis who – um adapted them, I think probably there was some calculation about Emma Watson being a stronger actor and they gave most of Ron's good lines in the books to Hermione. So the movies are like, you don't understand why they're even friends with Ron and you don't understand why like Harry and Hermione aren't fucking, and it's just like that's not true to the books. Ron is awesome; like he is very much like deserves to be there and is just as smart as Harry and Hermione. So that's how I feel about the
0: movies. That's wild, and they do kind of, and I think a lot of audiences kind of see Emma Watson's Hermione as definitive, yeah, as this this kind of know it all. Here I am getting these two boneheads out of a jam again, but it's it's interesting that you've you know picked up on. Ron being a lot more nuanced and having a lot more to him than kind of the bumbling sidekick to the other two than he, that he kind of gets pigeonholed as in the movies.
1: Yeah, he's sort of like a, like a comedia dell'arte slash sitcom, yeah, bumbling sidekick in the movies. And he's just not that in the books. And it like physically hurts me when people say things on the internet, like, you know, like, why were they even hanging around with Ron? And I'm like, uh, Ron had the only sense of humor. Like, there's a lot of points in the books. If you reread them obsessively, that like Harry and Hermione are totally losing their sense of humor and Ron just like comes in and saves the day and like really shows the power of like humor and it's really important and... And I just think that was lost in the movies.
0: I totally hear you. And, it, it, you know, it's it's such a classic pairing in all of literature and theater and film, whatever, of having you need the straight man and the weirdo. And that role is so fundamental. And when it kind of gets washed out, we we
1: lose something out of it. Specifically in the third movie. um, In the third book, Ron is the one who, like, stands up to Sirius Black when they think he's a murderer and is about to kill all of them. And it's really pointing in the book because Sirius, in his dog form, has just brought Broken Ron's leg, and he's like, If you want to kill her, you'll have to kill us too, which is sweet and pathetic because he's like incapacitated at that moment. And in the movie, he's just like sitting there sobbing pathetically and. Hermione gets to say that line and she's like actually strong and capable and it's a totally different scene and it breaks my heart
0: (laughs) but then it's conflicting because it's also like you you do want to see empowered bad bitch Hermione and there had to have been a happy medium between where you get empowered bad bitch Hermione but also you get authentic witty doofus Ron
1: there could have been other choices and maybe they'll remake them and maybe they'll let me be a consultant (laughs) and I will tell them
0: what they should do differently We could have had it all. Although, who knows? With J.K. Rowling's Twitter, we may have been misreading everything the whole time, but this is the way it is. And it's canon now because this tweet happened. Oh, my
1: God. It really, oh, it really, it's hard. It's really hard, Lindsay.
0: How do you feel about the, like, canon retconning that happens on J.K. Rowling's Twitter?
1: So, I have a long and complicated history with this because when she in whatever it was 2007 or eight like a long time ago was like yeah dumbledore was gay the whole time i was like bitch i knew sorry i don't know if i can swear but i absolutely can swear (laughs) okay great i had been reading and writing fan fiction by 2008 for like eight years and i was a literal child
0: (laughs) (laughs) i you can't see but i just made a yes chip because I cannot wait to talk to you about (laughs)
1: fanfiction. Let's talk about it. But like I had literally I mean I'm not embarrassed by this. I'm only apologizing if like a child is listening but like I had written and read like Dumbledore and Grindelwald fanfic way before she actually said it. So at first when J.K. Rowling started like retconning and like jossing her own work and being like actually I was woke the whole time. I was like (laughs) yes. Yes bitch I knew you were. Yes work. And now it's just like it was embarrassing. Like now I understand and the the problematic. I mean, she's gotten so careless, I think, with the like the Native American houses in the American wizard schools that she kind of offended a lot of people with. I was like, "Oh, please stop." And and then my friend, I have a friend, I don't think she'll mind me name checking her, but my friend Alana Bennett, who is the person who I co-taught the the Harry Potter class with, used to write for BuzzFeed and she had a post go viral about being a biracial woman and reading Hermione as biracial. And J.K. Rowling was like, yeah, I meant that. And it was like, did you though? Did you? I don't think you did. We'll
0: uh, put a link to her piece in in the show notes if that's, Great. that's cool. I think it would definitely help with the context. I'd also love to include some commentary about... Kind of what happened with Ilvermorny and, you know, different takes on the retconning of Dumbledore as gay, of there being Jewish students at Hogwarts. Right,
1: right. Um, that was funny.
0: <laughs> yeah, there was one. poor arthur goldstein whatever of course he was a ravenclaw like
1: i like don't remember this one like i've blocked out so much of what she said over the years because it hurts so bad (laughs) um i'm my mom's jewish so i i definitely like growing up was like yeah very confused not very confused but i was like oh i guess all of the uk is christian and then my step-grandmother actually had been a like a like a refugee in the uk during world war ii as a jewish german child and she was like no there are jews in the uk and i was like not according to harry potter though grandma <laughs> also which is
0: wild to me because having lived in the uk uh, for only a year but even in that sense i got the sense in their media at least in television and film and even in you know, stage shows like everybody's talking about Jamie, there's more of a concerted effort to show the religious and cultural diversity of the country of that there are Muslim and Hindu and Sikh and Jewish people who also live here. And that we should, you know, honor and celebrate and make them visible. And that's not to paint the UK as a utopia, I think. Brexit definitely knocked any, any illusions we had about that completely out of the way. But it's, it's wild that there's create even a like idealized version of the UK in the 90s how many groups of people were totally erased by this particular vision and like Hogwarts still being like what a lot of people think the UK is
1: yeah no that's real but I also I mean counterpoint because at the end of the day like I do consider J. Caroling like a second mother an absent mother because <laughs> um, <laughs> we don't have that but I have a fake relationship with her in my head and I feel and my mom my own mom knows this but I do think like on the one hand I cut her a little bit of slack because it's like with great power comes great responsibility. And I think she her version of acknowledging that is like trying to be better in the years since it took off. But if you think about it as like this little book that almost didn't get published, you know, how much research was she going to do? Like, of course, she was going to screw things up. And like, in a way, like, it's not okay. But I can see how she is. I think her retconning is in part her trying to correct for the fact that she got this much larger platform than she was probably like politically capable of having at the time that she had it and it's hard to blame her for that she was like 27 when she wrote the first one but I uh, yeah it's a shame a lot of
0: things have changed since the first book was released and you know we we do expect our our literary heroes to be everything and speak for everybody and there's and it, it that kind of pressure isn't always sustainable
1: I don't think it's sustainable and I also think like even though it's misguided and it's hurt a lot of people that's like her attempt to to do that she is like attempting to make them slightly more politically inclusive or whatever than they were and I, it's again it's misguided but it's i think it's an attempt like the cursed child casting of the hermione is black in both the uk production and the new york production i think that was like like she really wanted that to fix her mistakes <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of work to be done
0: and I could talk about this with you forever. We'll include some other commentary in the show notes from some other perspectives on this, but I would love to getting to the heart about this podcast is about you referring to JK Rowling as like your second mom <laughs> for you to like talk a little bit more about that kind of your relationship with her as a figure and what the books kind of throughout your life if you want to go into it. Sure. Yeah, I'll,
1: I'll go to town. But like, <laughs> yeah. So the first book came out in this country at when I was I. I think nine or 10, so not totally 11 yet. And uh, my parents are different religions. My mom's Jewish and my dad's Catholic. And I have thought about this a lot and I have like written a lot of essays about this, but I think I was sort of spiritually very uncertain as a kid. And I, I really am grateful to my parents for that because they didn't, really have dogma in the house like they they both practiced their religions separately and they wanted us to kind of like know about them but they didn't want to force their kids to be any one thing and i do think like harry potter filled this sort of like spiritual like dogmatic hole that maybe maybe some kids myself included look for which is you're trying to understand a world that you can't understand and for some parents the solution is to like thrust a bible into your hands or whatever and i think my parents let me read whatever i want and i really like clung on to harry potter as sort of a like an ethical guide i was like you know these people are trying their best they make mistakes but it's all about like you know there's a lot of ham-fisted people have criticized it a lot but uh lessons for children about how to behave to one another and you see them making mistakes which is the most important part you see Harry hurting people's feelings but then apologizing and you see Dumbledore being an imperfect adult and then apologizing and it's like really important to teach kids that
0: I've read a lot and seen a lot in memes and stuff about it, like how shitty of a headmaster Dumbledore actually is yeah. Like, like you have a giant serpent living <laughs> under the building and you're not gonna call an exterminator like come on <laughs> man there's like hundreds of children just <laughs> living here
1: come on I know but like okay so here's the thing is I love those memes because they make me laugh so hard but I think what they're doing and I think they're doing it intentionally is taking like a metaphor literally and the allegorical <laughs> strengths of Harry Potter are so strong that yeah when you kind of take it literally I love all of the like Dumbledore's or shitty headmaster <laughs> bits I think it's really funny but if you instead think of it in the allegorical sense of like here's here's this wise old mentor archetype this is like this is a hero cycle archetype who is not in control of like the chaos and evil of the world that's like a thing again that kids kind of have to know like it's cool to me it was it was mind-blowing I read a lot of fantasy that wasn't Harry Potter and there was always like a wise old white dude with a beard who knew everything the Merlin right the Merlin and I loved I kind of loved not that Jake Rowling's the only one to complicate that figure, but I do think it's funny that like, yeah, Dumbledore is like, yeah, that chamber's locked, yo. I can't do anything about it. Maybe this kid who speaks Parseltongue can fix it. Like, he can't fix everything. That's like so important. I love that. And I think it's an
0: important lesson for kids to learn is the adults in your life are gonna fuck up and they're not gonna know the answers to everything. And sometimes they're gonna actually make things worse. Yeah. I mean, we're recording this right on the Heels of a big news story about young climate activists advocating for the green new deal approaching senator diane feinstein and her just kind of laughing them off yeah. and you know this is the person that people have elected to deal with our big problems and i don't think there's a problem right now facing us larger than climate change and she's just
1: like nah yeah this isn't this isn't it and so realizing that yeah exactly and i think a lot of people took away i know these people like i I feel like I I knew such such hardcore devoted Harry Potter fans again through our communities of fan fiction and then later in college in person people who took those lessons so literally that like they were the ones who had to save the world like it's actually a really important and empowering message to give to kids, um, and, like, with Dumbledore's Army and then later real-life organizations like the Harry Potter Alliance and, like, things that actually try to do good work in the world by uniting Harry Potter fans to, like, make real change or, like, do things, volunteer and, you know, care about things. I actually think, like, it's not that other children's books don't do it, but it is seminal and important. And I think in a lot of the criticism of Harry Potter in this day and age, which is all justified, we, like, lose sight of the fact that A lot of the people who are who are adults now came up with that and I think felt empowered by it. So I'm really glad you brought up
0: the Harry Potter Alliance in particular. And I think what sets Harry Potter uh, and I think a lot of people who kind of scoff at the metaphors now are like, come on, y'all read another book. Yeah. But I also don't think another book series would have had that kind of galvanizing power that Harry Potter has. And that's because I think it's two things. One, you and I are roughly the same age. So we are both in that (laughs) very specific demographic that kind of grew up with Harry Yeah, and like the, Last book came out right around when we were in college and we were thrust into adulthood and, (laughs) you know, around the same time. So there's that kind of specific empathetic experience and connecting with a book in that way. And then there's also the fact that I don't think there is a fantasy series that has had this particular brand of community around it. I think it's the community that sets it apart in this way.
1: Yeah. And it kind of fertilizes itself. Like, that's the thing that's important. It's like, you can say, I mean, I hear, I've heard every anti-Harry Potter argument under the sun where it's like, yeah, I read another book. Here's a better fantasy series, whatever. The point is the fact that the, like the ubiquity and the size of the fandom led to more, more fandom. That's why I brought a copy of The Magicians and I like just read this book, Carry On by Rainbow Rowell, which is like literally Harry Draco AU fanfic that was made into a real book. And someone told me about it on Twitter and I didn't believe them that it really existed. Oh,
0: um, (laughs) have you also read Fangirl, which is the book that preceded Carry On and they kind of exist in the same, with apologies to Rainbow
1: Rowell (laughs) if I misrepresent this, but effectively exist in the same universe. I did not read it because I just don't like reading stuff about Fangirls, even if it's very true and specific. But a lot of people contextualized Carry On with me for me, and I was like, I don't want to read about a girl struggling in college and like turning to fan fiction because that is my life. I don't need like a fucking reflection of it. And then, uh, which is what we're here to talk about. Yeah. But I, I'm glad it exists. I just don't, I don't look to fiction for that level of escape. I look to fiction for the like fantasy escape of like I want a whole ass other world. I want nothing recognizable to me. But yeah, Carry On really blew my mind because it was like so did the Magicians. It's just which is now a TV show that I'm obsessed with and. It, it's just like because of how big the fandom is that is also what makes it special you can say there's something intrinsic to the story that makes it really special and I would agree with you and argue that but even if you don't agree with that just the fact that we have this common reference point for a generation of people that's that has power in and of itself. That's also what religious texts do. That explains why there's a <laughs> podcast
0: about Harry Potter and religion. I haven't listened to it, but
1: everyone tells me to. Have you listened to it?
0: I've listened to a couple episodes and it's, you know, I'm not as deep into the Harry Potter verse as many of my peers are, including my wife who has taken me to see Harry and the Potters at the Metro. Wow. That's a, that's a whole nother episode. <laughs> it is a very good podcast and I would definitely recommend it if you're interested in the inner section of harry potter and religion
1: yeah i am it's like weird i i don't care about religion a lot but i do care about it in terms of justifying my own fandom i'm like everybody's got this part of their brain that they need to put something in and this is how it is for me
0: but you're totally right people it's people need ways to contextualize the world around them that's part of what this is why we're talking right now is is looking at the things that allow us to to contextualize the world so i'd love to hear more about your experience in, in the fan fiction community in particular and especially maybe in college kind of how you were talking about their <laughs> fangirl the concept of fangirl felt
1: like a little too close to home oh my god too close to home yeah i, I can't even believe that's a real book and yeah i okay okay i will do that i want to answer your questions it's your podcast you the host but i have a specific paragraph from the first book of The Magicians that explains how I feel about Harry Potter. Can I read it? Absolutely. <laughs> okay. This is so fun. Thank you. Okay, just to like do some table setting, but basically, are you familiar with The Magicians? I'm familiar more with the TV show than I am with the books. The The TV show is actually better in my opinion, and I also would argue that's because it has a female showrunner, a female a a man and a woman and I think the man's gay and like the woman is a hardcore feminist and she's awesome and the books are a little more male gazy, but I like the books a lot of people don't. I would say just for
0: for background for folks who may be familiar with Harry Potter but not with the magicians do you want to give us just a super quick cliff notes? Yes
1: super quick cliff notes is that it's kind of like if Harry Potter and Narnia happened to you like later than childhood so in the books the main characters discover that they're magicians which is basically wizards when they're 18 and about to go to college. And then in the show, they changed it so that they're young adults about to go to grad school. Like they're supposed to go to like Yale. And then they're like, no, actually go to magic school. (laughs) That's the close notes. Yeah,
0: you're getting your wizard MBA, motherfuckers.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and it's like such wish fulfillment and it's clearly written, Love Grossman wrote the books and it's just clearly written with so much love for that canon, I think. Um, It's a subversion of it, I would argue. And basically what the characters discover, I mean, they're miserable books. They're like really sad. And the show is sad as well, although it's more fun and campy. The sort of thesis of them is that magic doesn't make anything better. Everybody's still like a fuck up and they think that it's gonna sal- solve their problems and it doesn't. Which is a metaphor in part for fandom in the books. Basically, this main character, Quentin, this is like the beginning of the first book that I wanted to just read a very short passage, but this is like page six. And there's this book fake book series in in The Magicians called The Fillery and further books, which is um like a mix of Narnia and Harry Potter that all of the characters are obsessed with. <laughs> this is so meta. It's so <laughs> meta, Lindsay. I love it so much.
0: Okay. So- so, I love that this book series is so self-aware that people are going to be like, this is a Harry
1: Potter pastiche. And
0: yeah, it's like, yeah, so we're going to put this in the books. Exactly. Anyway, continue. No, that's
1: exactly why it matters so much. Like this book could only have been written in, I think it was 2011, but it like, literally could only have been written then. Oh, 2009. Dang. Okay. But okay. So like most people, Quentin read the Fillory books in grade school. Unlike most people, unlike James and Julia, those are his like Ron Hermione friends, he never got over them. They were where he went when he couldn't deal with the real world, which was a lot. The Fillory books were both a consolation for Julia not loving him and also probably a major reason why she didn't. I know. I know. Lindsay's gesticulating wildly. (laughs) This is why I had to bring this book in, um, and it was true. There was a strong whiff of the English nursery about them, and he felt secretly embarrassed when he got to the parts about the cozy horse, an enormous, affectionate equine creature who trots around Fillory by night on velvet hooves and whose back is so broad you can sleep on it, and whose da- name is definitely not Buckbake. Oh my God! Seriously though, I it's and I think there's a character in the Narnia books that also is like that. That they like sleep on a giant moving animal. There's just one more paragraph, and then I'll shut up. But there was one there, but there was a more seductive, more dangerous truth to Fillory that Quentin couldn't let go of. It was almost like the Fillory books, especially the first one, The World and the Walls, We're about reading itself. Uh, When the oldest Chatwin, Melancholy Martin opens the cabinet of the grandfather clock that stands in a dark, narrow back hallway in his aunt's house and slips through into Fillory, Quentin had always pictured him awkwardly pushing aside the pendulum, like the uvula of a monstrous throat. It's like he's opening the covers of a book, but a book that did what books always promised to do. And never actually quite did get you out really out of wherever you were and into something better or somewhere better. That's it. That's it. That's the whole show. (laughs) We can pack it in here, y'all. <laughs> thank you, Love Grossman. But it's so there's so much about fandom and coping, and I know that's the substance of this podcast. So it's like, I got to bring you this passage. You, thank you. That that's really that's that's kind of the thesis statement right there. Good. I'm so yeah. glad we're on the same page. Yeah. But yeah, so so you want me to talk about fan fiction from that?
0: I would say fan fiction in the
1: in the community,
0: especially and as you were growing up and delving into academia and all that.
1: Sure, yeah. Well, okay, so we were talking about radical vulnerability before we started recording and everything, but um, this is something I talk about a lot these days. I I have anxiety and depression. I know a lot of people do. It doesn't, it's not, I don't like it when people use their mental illness as a substitute for a personality, so I refuse to do that. I only got medicated in my late 20s, and before that, I would say that I absolutely medicated with fandom, Um, and it's sort of something that comes into sharper focus, once you're dealing with it in a different way. And I wouldn't necessarily even say that like therapy and meds are better, although they are. Um, It's a dangerous thing to say, you know, Had I had access to therapy and meds, I would have taken advantage of them. But it was only on, like, a certain insurance at a certain time in my life that I could. So I'm really grateful to, like, fandom for saving my life many, many, many times. But basically what happened, like, the long story short of it is that I was always obsessed with Harry Potter all through grade school. I had a really rough time in high school, and that was around the time that I found fan fiction. Um, And I was, like, really rough, really, really rough. And so – I didn't do very much socially in high school. Like, I didn't go out on the weekends. Like, I didn't really do anything. Um, And I read and wrote a lot of fan fiction. And I think that's the story of a lot of people. But the thing that is pretty funny to me about it in hindsight is that a lot of people were very shy about it and I was absolutely not I would just tell everyone all the time which is why that line about like Quentin being obsessed with Fillory was maybe in part why this girl didn't love him was really funny to me because like all of the men I loved in high school and women knew that I was this giant dork and didn't was never going to date them because I was so invested in my Harry Potter fan fiction so that made me a comedian later in life (laughs) thank god but uh in high school just made me very weird and i like had a zanga where i would like talk about it like this was public knowledge Lindsay. like i was not shy about it
0: i too had a zanga so i feel you on this and there's the earnestness and vulnerability of teenagers with blogs circa 2004 is Mm. a wild you want to talk about radical vulnerability like That Yeah. I need to stop gesticulating so wildly because this is an auditory medium, but. (laughs) I love it. I love your gesticulation. So did you like meet other fans and find that community that maybe you didn't find in school through fanfic?
1: Absolutely. I mean, it was always, it was always like a, like a public thing for me. Like it just, it wasn't like a, it wasn't a siloed activity I did Mm -hmm. in like my dark bedroom. First of all, I didn't have a computer. So I had a family computer, (laughs) first of all. (laughs) So it couldn't be a secret. and second of all um yeah I was only allowed to go on the internet for like an hour a day for a few years there so I yeah anyway I did find people in real life because I had to it was just like coming out of me at all times I was just like I have to talk about this This is the only thing I want to talk about so I remember my freshman year of high school I made one of my best friends um Christina who uh we were in an art class together and I just like she liked Harry Potter but I just talked her ear off about fandom stuff. And we are still friends. Thank goodness. So like then we, she and I actually formed a Harry Potter club at high school. Okay. yes. Um, <laughs> why did we do that? I don't know. What did we do there? I don't remember, but it was mostly just for like, it was all women. I remember. And maybe one guy who pretended to have an English accent. I think that sounds right. And it was just like the nerdiest. That possible is so
0: <laughs> craven and so impressive.
1: Crazy. <laughs> um Craven is a good word, but it was also full of like mentally ill teenagers who were definitely dealing with their depression and anxiety and other situations with fandom. So I loved them. I will say
0: we did actually in the first episode of this podcast about figure skating, we talked about hyperfixation and (sighs) fandom as a means of uh, coping with mental health issues. Oh my God, tell me more. I'm sorry I missed it. Lindsay Schroeder is another uh, Chicago comedy producer was our first guest and she talked about uh, going through a really rough time professionally and personally during the Pyeongchang Olympics mm-hmm. and how, and how watching the, the figure skating became an escape and then wanting to know everything about everyone involved in particular tessa virtue and scott moyer yeah like it's interesting that the this is like a continuation of that conversation and how much like phantom and hyperfixation as like uh, coping means tends to tends to come up in these conversations
1: yeah i mean it's interesting i i'm on so i'm on multiple chats right now with multiple friends from different points in my life about the magician's tv show right now because i don't know if you're caught up but they made a queer couple canon and it was a really big deal are they canon in the books or just on the show oh my god this is another this is another hour of our lives Lindsay. so you're gonna have to stop me they're they're not exactly canon in the books but the the author has treated their relationship like brides had revisited where he's like it's like a longing thing that never quite happens and he literally cited brides had revisited which is really intense and in the show they just let it happen or the ao3 notes would say pining slash angst yes Yes. Hashtag slow burn. Hashtag slow burn fic, because in the books, it's three long books. And then in the show, it's been four seasons. Oh, my God. um, So I'm on all these intense chat threads with a lot of different people, a lot of people from um, Harry Potter fandom, mostly, who are like, and a lot of queer people and a lot of people who are hyperfixated on the fact this is happening right now and it's um it's just it's just a wild time i don't even know where i was going with that but in terms of hyperfixation i was in a pretty okay place um with this all happening this last month but i i fell into my little like i it's like when people do ketamine and they call it a k hole it's like i fell into a, like a fandom hole and i just forgot the rush of serotonin that it brings <laughs> like i totally forgot cuz i'd been fine and on you know, Prozac or whatever. And then I was like, oh, fuck. I forgot what happiness feels like. <laughs> like real happiness.
0: And you just want to read everything about what's what's happening.
1: Yeah, I do. I've been in this fandom since there were 24 fan on AO3 about this couple. And now currently, I checked this morning before coming here, there are 785. And that's like all in the last couple of months. So I have to read all of them is the end of the story.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and all of the the weird AU. Yep. The, the whole notion of AU fanfiction is wild, is still, like, really wild to me. Yeah. But it's so, like, it's also super interesting to see it as a world-building exercise. I mean, that's kind of how I feel taking a more nuanced approach to fanfiction. That's, we're gonna do these real people, but this is a Mr. and Mrs. Smith AU. Yeah. Or, <laughs> we're going to have these these uh canadian ice dancers that you love but in this one he's a flower shop owner and she's a tattoo artist and it's it's interesting playing with the like taking what already exists and like Plunking it into different worlds.
1: Yeah. Well, I was just we, we you and I follow each other on Twitter. As of recently, we met last week. Um, but I just did a thread on this because it's something that's really important to me. But but like the Sherlock BBC adaptation is a modern day AU fan fiction, and because it was written by Stephen Moffat and Mark Gatiss and their men, we don't call it that. And it's like, and then it's like everyone's so quick to say, well, the Fifty Shades series was series was just a Twilight fanfiction AU, and I'm like, yeah. But also you're like sort of dismissing it by by saying that like people in media tend to use fan fiction as like a derogatory, like, oh, this is just what it is. No, that's all everything is. Ten Things I Hate About You is a Shakespeare AU modern fanfic. So screw
0: everyone. <laughs> Or the uh, lesser-known teen rom-com "Whatever It Takes," which is a Cyrano de Bergerac. There's been like a million Pygmalion adaptations, yes. which we've talked about. Like at one point
1: is an adaptation, and at one point is it AU fanfic. Well, they're the same thing, and it really hurts. It's like it's very gendered. It can be very gendered, and it can be very sexist as to what we call them.
0: "The Lion, the Witch, and the H- what Wardrobe" is New Testament fanfic. Thank you. Yes, it
1: is with talking animals. It's free. It's free Bible yeah. AU fanfic. Lion exclamation point Jesus. <laughs> 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 That's really a, that could be like a real hashtag and Good Omens is also like sort of um whatever book of revelations fan fiction. I love Good Omens, but it is
0: it is Bible fanfic. Yeah, I think you also brought up American Gods as yeah. an example, which people wouldn't be. People would be like, "How dare you suggest that Neil Gaiman is fan fiction?" But
1: I'm, I feel like he'd be cool with it. I feel like he'd understand where I'm coming from. I think he would too, because I think he is a person. He seems to be a creator who understands that there's similarity, and he wrote a very famous Sherlock Holmes fanfic called A Study in Emerald, where there's like a Cthulhu-like monster in a Sherlock Holmes story. So he knows what fanfic is. <gasps>
0: Uh, anyway, yeah. Yeah. I could,
1: there could be an entire episode just about this.
0: How did all these kinds of experiences, you know, building a club with your friends in high school, uh, getting involved with the fanfic community, then inform your experience teaching that class?
1: Oh, my gosh. I mean, I think that class was a blast. I think, you know, I was probably 21 and my co-teacher was 19. And I think there are things I would do differently now because I'm almost 30 than I did then. Like, it was very much um, peers teaching peers. We kind of let, it was anarchy in that we had a syllabus and a lesson plan, but we let everyone kind of do what they want. Like one of my favorite days was when we, this is actually a very cool story, but we, we wanted to talk about fan art and a student brought in, um, like a portfolio of her Luna Lovegood fan art. And I know it was so sweet and it wasn't like X-rated. And if it had been Jenna, that would have been fine, but it was like beautiful PG, G-, G rated, beautiful Luna Lovegood fan art. And that friend of mine now works for Disney and like does like draws for her job and, you know, does commissions and is like still in that world. And it makes so much sense to me that that's, you know, what she was doing in college and that's what she does now as a career. I just love it. That's awesome.
0: And do you find that
1: like,
0: did you find that people had similar experiences to you coming into that class? Like, did your students ever talk about that?
1: Yeah, they did. I mean, it was an interesting s- case because there were people in that class who were my friends who I maybe knew more intimately and like maybe felt more more comfortable sharing like, you know, the fact that fandom was tied to depression or like struggles. That definitely was a part of the class, but I think because it was a formal class and not everyone in the class knew me as a friend um, or my co-teacher as a friend, there was like a sort of level of, um, what's the right word? Yeah. Like distance, like, you know, pedagogical distance where we didn't get into it. It wasn't group therapy It occasionally veered into it, but it really mostly wasn't. And I think if I taught that class now, I mean, I do teach, I teach at Northwestern, but uh, ooh, I don't know if I'm allowed to. Yeah. If I pitched a class on that, I might like make more space for those discussions. And I don't think I intentionally set a space for that. It just kind of came out naturally.
0: Oh, man, I could talk to you about this <laughs> stuff forever. But we do kind of have to start winding down a little bit. What is your relationship to Harry Potter and the magicians as you go about your day to day life and your performing and everything? What is
1: what does that look like now? And if you had asked me this, like a month ago, it would have been very different. But it's been a really intense month in fandom. <laughs> Um. So typically, it's something that I just sort of joke about, and it's not something that I'm super engaged in anymore. Um, that's true. People who know me probably don't believe that because I talk about it all the time. I mean, I do do stand up. I teach. I have a a nine to five and a teaching job, and I, and I read a lot of things that are not fan fiction. I read a lot of books. I watch a lot of TV. That's not that's not fantasy. I think it's always just been something that I consider like a, a foundational part of myself. Like I attribute a lot to it. I give it a lot of credit. I'm never I'm never shy about it. I overshare about it. Um, it informs my feminism. It informs my politics. It informs the way I see storytelling. It informs the way I see who gets to tell certain stories. Um, so it, it's never far from the surface, but it's not something I always... Bring up. And I think when I fall into these little fandom holes, like I've been in lately, um, it, it's just constantly on the tip of my tongue. Like it's, I bring it up to everyone, like, at, like my boss at work last week. She happens to be a Star Wars fan, so she understands. But I had to tell her. I was like, "Look, I'm having trouble concentrating right now because like this thing happened on The Magicians, <laughs> and like I knew she would understand, or else that would be completely mental ill. But like I had to tell her because it was so close to the surface. Um, so how does it look? It really changes. It waxes and wanes with um, both my mental health and um, what's happening in fandom. But I do try to be like proactive about identifying when I think activities veer into the unhealthy, or like obsession, or hyper fixation fears into the unhealthy versus when it's just a nice thing that is an alternative to heroin because um, you know like I'm not out here using hard drugs um, it can feel sometimes like a drug but it's also I think pretty harmless at the end of the day that actually feeds
0: really well into a question that I like to ask all our guests what outside of pop culture or fandom do you like to do to practice self or community care
1: oh that's beautiful that's a really good question well, I think that, um, when you have the money to, which I really don't, but I, when I can, I like to get massages. I think that, I think that we underestimate in this society, like, how much, t- how much non-sexual touch matters for mental health. Um, so I think that really matters. And also, You know, trying to also be physical with friends who who appreciate that. And I mean, I've never been much of a hugger, but I'm trying lately, especially in like in the post-Trump, you know, apocalypse and everything to show like physical affection more to people who need it because of that touch starving thing. Oh my God, that's beautiful. (laughs) Thanks. And yeah, even when I came in and you went in for a hug, I like wasn't expecting it. And I'm like, I want to hug Lindsay. I'm so, I'm sorry. I just didn't know. Um, But yeah, just like things like that. And then um, community, I mean, I've always been, my parents are very political. So um, like I like going to protests and demonstrations and boycotts and camp, like all that stuff is sort of part of, my life, anyway. So, if you're talking about self care for the community, I definitely care a whole bunch about that. I mean, with the mayoral election coming up, it's like the other thing I talk about all the
0: time. Oh my god, please vote <laughs> Chicago. This will come out after the mayoral election, <laughs> but maybe not the runoff. So, vote in the runoff. Vote
1: in the runoff. Um, please don't let another daily be mayor of Chicago. Please. Oh my god, oh my god what are you doing? Um, just pick your favorite other person and don't split the vote. Just, just, just vote for Tony Frackwinkle. What's wrong with everyone? Okay, so um, it's fine. Anyway, uh. Uh, I don't care who you vote for as long as it's not bill daily. Yeah. So I am like very highly engaged with politics all the time. That's I don't really consider that self care. But I like the fact that you phrased it as like possibly community care because that makes it feel a little less um, awful because um, it does feel like sand under my skin all the time. But it's like you can't you can't opt out. I don't really believe you can opt out of that sort of thing. I'm totally with you there. Hope
0: Rehack, thank you so much. This was so fun. This was a great conversation. Is there
1: anything else you have coming up that you want to plug or where can we find you online? Oh my gosh. Thank you, Lindsay. It's been so fun. I don't know if I have anything coming up. I don't keep track of my own shows and that's my problem. But I do want you to find me online um, at hoperehack.com and on my Twitter at Hope Rehack. And also um, I have an essay, I think, coming out about The Magicians online soon. So look for that.
0: We will definitely share it on all of our social media once that's up thanks thank you for listening to i'll be there for you we put out new episodes every other sunday to help you beat those sunday scaries and start your week off right you can find us on apple Podcasts, stitcher spotify wherever you like to listen to podcasts please uh like us online subscribe give us those sweet sweet five-star reviews thank you so much and take care everybody